The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. When we left off in the book of Acts a couple weeks ago, we heard about the devastating sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember those two? Remember how they lied to the Holy Spirit about the nature of their gift to the church and how the Lord struck each one of them down in turn and they died? Do you remember how those young men carried their bodies out and buried them? It's interesting, if you drive around the East Coast, you'll see a lot of cemeteries next to church buildings. Started the first one right here in Acts chapter 5. Carried them out and buried them. Imagine the ripple effect that that would have on the church. Imagine the way that that would affect you if someone in our congregation publicly lied, and although we didn't know it, God did, and struck them dead. Imagine what that would cause to happen in our hearts, where we'd be much more concerned about holiness and much more fearful to follow in obedience. But also consider what that would look like to the outsiders, those who are not part of the church, those who are not commonly gathering with us, those who are looking on with skepticism already at the gospel. Then imagine they begin talking about how that's the church where you go if you want to die. In Acts chapter 5, verse 12, it tells us what these results looked like. It said, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Everyone who heard about this church was aware that that's the place where Ananias and Sapphira were struck down supernaturally by God and they were carried out of that place in body bags. Imagine the gossip that would have started to swirl around that neighborhood. Do you think it was really God? Do you think it was really God who did that or was it something else? Is there foul play? I wonder if Ananias and Sapphira had unbelievers in their family. Did they have parents living with them, kids living with them, cousins, aunts, uncles who were unbelievers? What did they think about this event that took place to their family member? How would they respond? This was certainly the talk of the town. If everyone is fearful, if they're being filled with fear, it's certainly something that they're all communicating about. And you would think that people would look at a church like that and want to stay away. That they would look at someplace like that and see it as dangerous and avoid it. But what we see taking place here in our text this morning is quite the opposite. In Acts chapter 5, we see the church growing at a rapid pace in the face of immense opposition. So here we see the promise of Christ being worked out. I just prayed moments ago reminding us that he said, I will build my church. It's a promise and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Here we see all sorts of pressure coming against the church, yet... In spite of those things, his kingdom is being built. So in order to best work our way through this rather lengthy text this morning, we're going to simply divide it into four subdivisions and consider each section independently. So our outline this morning will be this. Part one, growing momentum. Part two, great escape. Part three, Gamaliel's er error. And part four, gospel-centered endurance. Our first scene, the growing momentum, is just a summary paragraph here written for us by Dr. Luke. Actually, this is the third summary statement written by Luke, which lets us know that there is a passage of time that takes place, and he gives us all the need-to-know information about what took place within that body of time between major events that were happening in the early church. I don't know if any of you guys are um, up on modern internet language. 
I just figured out what TLDR means. Too long, didn't read. Do any of you guys know that? So now at the bottom of a lot of news articles, it'll say TLDR, and it will have one paragraph that summarizes articles. So if you ever don't have time, scroll to the bottom and read it. We don't want to treat the Word of God that way, so follow along with me as we begin reading in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The power of God is clearly active in a unique way during this time. Jerusalem, remember, had not been privileged to witness many of the miracles of Christ. Remember that most of his ministry, the overwhelming majority of his ministry, was up north in Galilee, where people who lived in Jerusalem rarely went. The majority of his ministry that even took place in Judea, in the region where Jerusalem is, it didn't take place in the city itself. For example, the raising of Lazarus was two miles away from the gates of Jerusalem. Most of the miracles that Jesus performed were not done in Jerusalem and not seen by the eyes of the people of Jerusalem. But now the ministry of Jesus is, is continuing on through the apostles' hands and is entering into those gates. And they are seeing overwhelming evidence that Christ is indeed still working, but now through these men. The signs that accompanied his ministry are being displayed, and thereby it was substantiating the fact that these truly are the messengers of God. That this good news that they are bringing is not just made up, but it is from the mouth of God himself. Verse 13 tells us that the unbelievers would not go into the area of the temple courts where the church would gather. Why? Because they were afraid. It makes sense. Ananias and Sapphira. But curiously, it also says that they held the apostles in high esteem. They looked at these men and they viewed them like the crowds had viewed Christ, not with bitterness and anger and skepticism, but when Jesus was doing miraculous things, people loved it. And the crowds flocked around him. And here we see a similar attitude in the crowds surrounding the apostles. We see this as one of the main reasons now why the religious rulers were angered. The Sadducees, who were the ones primarily centered in the temple, they liked attention. They were the ones responsible for leading the people and giving them laws, yet the people never liked them. The people didn't enjoy being around them. The people didn't adore them. The people didn't hold them in high esteem. The most important part of this summary verse, that we, a passage that we just read, is found in verse 14. It says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, consider what that means. If you, if you think about it, there were roughly 3,000 people that were saved at the day of Pentecost. And then over the chapters 3 and 4 that we have just recently preached through, thousands more have come to the Lord. And now it says more than ever. Multitudes of people were coming to Christ. This must have been a massive revival in this, in this city. That people were being saved by the thousands. That is a breathtaking statement. 
And the Lord rejoices over one lost sheep that is carried back by the Savior. But Luke tells us now that more than ever, multitudes, men and women, were flocking into the kingdom of God. So now we come to see one of the more abused verses in this chapter. Verse 15, we see that people would literally be laid along the side of the street, just hoping that Peter's shadow would touch them so they could be healed. Now, there are some of our more Pentecostal persuaded brothers that believe that this indicates the kind of power that we should still have over people with uh, with sickness and who are near death. But we must remember that this verse is descriptive of what was taking place, not prescriptive, telling us what we are supposed to be doing. It's informing us what happened, not what we are supposed to do. Let me just make a few quick notes that will show you that's what Luke is actually getting at. First, the text does not actually say that the shadow of Peter really healed anyone. If you read it carefully, you will note that the verse tells us that everyone who came to the apostles was healed. But if you look earlier in the passage, it says, by the laying on of the apostles' hands. So here, when the people are coming and they're laying these people beside the road, hoping that the, the shadow of Peter would be healed, it's talking to their popularity not to their method of healing people. However, I'm not denying the possibility that it could take place, but we can't say definitively from this text that anyone was actually recovering from an illness just because the shadow of Peter would touch them. Secondly, let's say for sake of of argument that they actually were healed by the shadow of Peter, which by the way, I don't believe they were, but let's say that they actually were. If that is the case and these healings were occurring, then they were absolutely passive. Consider that. It doesn't say anything about Peter at all if his shadow was indiscriminately healing people. All it tells us is that God decided to use a man and even the way that the light was going around a man to heal people. God can do that if he wants. This is not the work of Peter. This is actually speaking to the work of God, not man. This actually takes the miracle farther away from Peter, not closer to him. He was not consciously extending his shadow, was he? This is Peter the Apostle, not Peter Pan. I don't think he was avoiding touching people just because they were sick and saying, well, I'm not going to get close, but I'll get close enough that my shadow will touch you. There we go. And then all of a sudden they were healed. No, it says that everyone they lay their hands on were healed. Back up in chapter 5, verse 12. This is just a way for us to see that it was all of God if there was healing taking place from the shadow, not from Peter's will or effort or exertion or decision or desire. Thirdly, let's say that this is descriptive and that this is something that we are supposed to consider for us, that we are supposed to be so righteous and holy that anyone who comes near us is healed. I know people who believe this. For the sake of argument, let's say that miraculous healings are still supposed to be part of the church life today. If they are, Why is it that people in the streets are not being healed today? And why don't faith healers go to cancer wards at at hospitals and just walk around? There's a reason for that. There's a reason that they have these big stadiums where they fill them with thousands of people and have only select ones able to come to the front, the ones with the easily healable diseases, the ones that you can visually recognize. You can say this person has been healed, but nobody could refute you. These gifts of miraculous healing are not normative for regular church life. There's a reason that we saw them stop after the age of the apostles 
not to continue again until people really started thinking that they did in the early 1900s. For 1900 years, the church believed that these miraculous healings were not normative for the church. Now, let's pause for a second and consider this. Does God still heal people? I believe the answer to that is absolutely yes. Are we to pray for people to be healed? I believe the answer to that is absolutely yes. This week, I have been praying daily for Barbara, and I'm thankful that God has brought her here this morning because she recently has been recovering from a very bad sickness as she's been recovering from a surgery that took place. Barbara, we are thankful that the Lord has been working in your life. I don't believe anyone recovers from any sickness unless God is pushing the curse back. Sickness is a way to get us to death. Death is the curse that God has given us because of sin. Therefore, if there is any respite that comes from that, it is a gracious gift that comes from the hand of God alone. Now, God can use the common grace of medicine and doctors and all sorts of other things that we can use to keep ourselves healthy. But ultimately, if God wants you to live longer, he's the one who's going to do it. And if he wants you to die, once again, he's the one who is going to do it. So when we consider this question of healing, does God heal? Absolutely. The apostles, though, were uniquely gifted with the ability to heal the sick with immediacy and with certainty, where they could lay their hand on a person and say, be healed, and it occurred without question and without delay. What we do now is very different. What we do now is we pray asking the Lord, please, God, take away this cancer. Please, God, Restore that person's health to them. Please, God, help that person's cold go away. Cause that person to be completely healthy once again. Whatever it might be that we are praying for, when we are praying for these different things, we are asking God comfortable with whether he says yes or no. Those prayers are therefore not like the apostles. They are not answered with immediacy or certainty. In other words, they are not miracles. These are things that God can do in his time if he wants. Miracles are things that occur through the mediation of an individual who tells them to take place. Like Moses using his staff to part the Red Sea. Who really parted it? God did the work, but, but Moses was involved. For us, we are so little involved. We just pray and say, Lord, it's in your hands. Your will be done. But what we do learn from this passage is simply this. Jesus was continuing his ministry through the church. And he was confirming the message of the gospel and authenticating his messengers by way of miraculous power. But if you notice, the most interesting thing, I think, is this. The majority of growth in the church actually occurred before the miracles were happening. If you notice, according to verse 15, it was because of the growth of the church that people were being brought around the apostles. Not the other way around. But we have lingered here a long time, so let's now move forward to part two, the great escape. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 17. It says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to, all the, to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, 
They did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. There's a lot here, but we're simply going to zoom in on three quick things. First, notice who the opposition is. This is the Sadducee party. This is the group of roughly 33 men who are part of the ruling body called the Sanhedrin. These were the theological liberals who were most concerned with the political advancement of Israel, not spiritual advancement. And these people did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in the afterlife. These people were theologically liberal for their day. They were functionally deistic. They said, maybe there's a God out there that started everything, but he doesn't get himself involved in our life today. These rulers are now looking around at the apostles, and they're jealous. Their their jealousy has ruffled them into now a rage against the church. And instead of doing what they had done previously and just arresting Peter and John, now they arrest all of the apostles. They were all targeted and arrested and sent to a public prison. And how ironic is it that God chose an angel to release them. He didn't have to do that. There are times that we will see even later in this book how God releases people by way of political machinations. We see them being released by an earthquake, shaking their bonds apart while they are singing at midnight and just walking out. God does not need to send an angel, but oh, how ironic is it that he did. When it's the Sadducees who don't believe that angels exist, And now he sends an angel in to get them out. So if they tell, what happened to you? How did you get out of there? There's no way the Sadducees will will listen or hear. Oh, how interesting and ironic I find this to be. The Sadducees are patently rejecting the existence of angels, angels. So I think that the very nature of this event, God was actually shaming their unbelief. Secondly, notice the absurdity of the command of the angel here. He tells these convicted felons, to return to the scene of their crime and to reenact the very crime that first got them arrested. Would you do that? Goodness gracious. There were two buildings where the temple grounds, uh, where the Sadducees regularly met and were stationed. The Sadducees literally went to their job at the temple. And now the angel tells them, go back to the temple and start doing exactly what you had done before. These people are in plain sight. They are not hiding from anyone. Solomon's portico, where the apostles were told to preach, was only a few hundred feet away from the Sadducees' front door. This plan is not safe from a worldly perspective, but the safest place to be is always right at the center of God's will. And as we will see, this command actually does have severe earthly and physical consequences, but also fruitful results. Thirdly, note carefully how the angel addresses their calling. He tells the apostles to speak to the people all the words of what? Of this life. What is he talking about? He's essentially saying this. Christianity is not just to be a hobby. It is not a side project. It is not cultural tradition that is just to be practiced. I practice my faith. When you truly become a Christian, it subsumes your entire identity. You are, first and foremost, a child of God. That is your primary bedrock identity. Deeper than your nationality, deeper than your language or your culture or your ethnicity, you are defined now by the new life that you have been given in Christ. Praise God for that. Look around this room. 
We are brothers and sisters because our primary identity is that we are found in Jesus. It's not my notes. Sorry, I got to find my spot. You are defined now by the life that you have been given by Christ. And so that is why the, the angel here summarizes and says, go and tell them about this life. This life that you are now committed to. This life that is now yours in Christ. The Scottish revolutionary William Wallace is quoted for a particular saying, but there's a lot of debate about whether or not he actually said it and should be accurately attributed to him. Apparently, this debate became pretty fierce between historians after the movie Braveheart was produced. Uh, But whatever it actually came from, the saying goes like this. sure you've heard it. Everybody dies, but not everyone truly lives. Now, although I think he intended a different meaning from those words, I think they are incredibly true. When a person is saved, they experience the joy of real life for the first time. We are now able to live as God intended his creation to live. We are able to live without this barrier between us that we can experience his love and we can enjoy him now. We don't have to wait for for heaven. We have communion with our creator. Some people call the Lord's Supper communion. They they call it that because it's a time for us to enjoy a relationship and, and closeness with God. But our entire life as Christians is called communion. We are near to him. We are in Christ. We can't get closer than that. Everlasting life does not begin when your physical body is lowered into the ground. It begins the moment your spirit is raised from death and you are born again. So our lives should look different if we are saved. There is newness to it. uh, Sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's something that is radically transformed. You are a uniquely different person than you were before that moment because now you have life. So let's turn our attention to the response of the Sadducees with part number three, Gamaliel's error. Verse 24 says, Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them. Reasonable. Wondering what would come this would come to. And some, someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and they drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking of, is of man, it will fail. But it's, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Now imagine being one of the Sadducees. Imagine being one of these guys. The text tells us they were perplexed. That makes a lot of sense. Have any of you ever seen a really good magic trick, either in person or like on television, where you know that this is not magic, but you just can't figure out how in the world they cut that lady in half or they got that dog to float in the air or whatever it is that they made that tiger disappear or got that card into your wallet. The, the Sadducees were looking at this situation and they were furious because they were, they were trying to figure out where are the seams in that box? Where are the wires holding up this, this thing? How is it that they got out of that room without the guards seeing them? And they were upset also because their popularity was now transferring to the apostles who had set up shop right next door to them in the temple. And now their political power seems to be completely undermined by what they assume to be an elaborate escape or some kind of a bribed guard or two. Now we're going to come back to verses 27 through 32 in a few minutes. But for now, I want to zoom in on Gamaliel's response. This man was a very well-known and highly respected leader. Actually, it's almost certain that Gamaliel was integral to the plot of killing Jesus because he was one of the foremost scholars in this time period in the Sanhedrin. He was one of those guys that when he speaks, everybody listens, as we see taking place in this text. This man was highly influential. This man was, uh, he was the grandson of the most respected rabbi of that day. If you've ever studied anything about Judaism in modern Judaism, they have about three schools that they really focus on. One of them is the school of Hillel that people still follow. A lot of people over in Brooklyn still listen to this rabbi. That's Gamaliel's grandfather. And Gamaliel was now this prodigy from the family line of Hillel himself. And he is this man who is now going to be highly respected and stand up and he gives his speech. This man, we also learn later, was raising up a young protege very different than his attitude his young protege, Saul of Tarsus, did not take this wait-and-see approach. He took the let's-kill-them-all type of approach. We'll come to that when we arrive there in the book of Acts. But consider this Pharisee's plea to the Sadducees. He tells them, it's a good idea just to leave these Christians alone because if God is really at the center of this movement, then it truly is unstoppable and they would find themselves actually not fighting these men but fighting God himself. I would like to just spend a couple minutes explaining why his perspective is actually quite dangerous and is something that if we, if we followed what he is doing, we will follow the wrong path. This is not the right way of determining God's will. Let's consider a few reasons why. First of all, many false religions are prospering around the world at any given time. For the last 50 years, the fastest growing religion in the world is Islam not Christianity. Does that verify that as God's will and his true people? In America, for years, the fastest growing religion has been the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons. Does that mean that they are, their doctrines are true and they're the true people of God because they're the ones with the most growth? Certainly not. Certainly it does not. Sometimes God allows false religions to prosper for a time. 
And at the end of all things, when Christ returns, there will still be false religions and many people who are opposing him. There will be many false gods that he comes to conquer under his feet. So this is not a good metric by which to determine a religion's validity. Secondly, the apostles never seem to adopt this kind of approach when new doctrines and new teachings start popping up within the church. No, the apostles condemned false teaching, and they condemned it strongly and outrightly to the extent of casting people who had different teachings out of their churches. They did not call them believers. They said, either follow this gospel or follow this false gospel, reject the true gospel, and perish. That's why Paul teaches that if you leave the faith, may you be accursed with a curse. Let's not take this wait-and-see approach. Thirdly, the church will oftentimes appear like it is losing. Why? Because the church has promised it will always be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. We hear that promise in 1 Timothy. And the church will always be smaller than the world. For Jesus said, the way is narrow and few are those who find it. The path that leads to destruction is broad. There are a lot more people there. The church is always going to be small compared to the world. And lastly, Gamaliel's wait-and-see approach to the gospel is not rare or unusual. There are many people who have personally adopted this approach when they are confronted with the good news. Perhaps maybe there's even some in this room right now who have made practice of being near the people of God, that they listen sometimes to the people of God. They, They hear the gospel. Maybe even they regularly attend church but they have refused to truly trust in Christ for salvation because they just want to wait and see how things play out first. If Gamaliel really believed there was a legitimacy to the claim of Christ, what should he have done? He should have gotten on his face at that very moment and cried out to God for forgiveness. He should have fallen onto his knees and sought repentance so that he might have his soul saved that very day. But instead, he just kept saying, let's wait for more evidence and see if this is the real deal. Now I ask you, what more evidence could he have had? What more do you want, Gamaliel? This man had evidence paraded under his nose constantly. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and we know the Sanhedrin were all aware of that because they made a plot to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus, tells us in the book of John. When the Sadducees knew full well that this man had been raised from being dead for four days, their response was not to believe but to want to kill Then Jesus himself rose from the dead. And then the apostles started healing people in the temple day after day after day. Do you think the Sadducees didn't see those guys? Do you think the Sadducees didn't recognize that these were legitimate healings taking place? And then when they locked those men up, they were released and they claimed it was by an angel. What more evidence could you possibly need to convince you? Yet, he says, let's wait and see. Friend, if you are here under the teaching of the gospel... And you have rejected the gospel thinking that you will just put it off for one more day. Whatever your reason be, please know that this is a dangerous and deadly compromise. And that it is not something that you want to play with. Do not harden your heart today. Trust in Christ. You are not promised tomorrow. Don't be like Gamaliel. See the goodness of the Savior and trust in him for your salvation. This brings us now to our fourth and final scene, gospel-centered endurance. Please follow along with me again in verses, starting at verse 27. It says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. 
Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now for this final point, we're simply going to consider three things which will function as practical applications for believers. First, I want to consider our approach to civil disobedience. I think a lot of times that's the main emphasis that we put on this text. When the apostles are told not to preach any longer in the name of Jesus, they famously respond in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. Notice that they did not wait until they were persecuted to obey God, though. They did not wait until the church was told, you must stop before they started. As the Sadducees note, the city was literally already filled with the teachings of the gospel. Now, I've lived in a lot of places. Um, Probably the place that I have lived that is the most evangelized is in Chanute, Kansas. There are churches everywhere. Uh, I've uh, many occasions visited Siloam Springs in Arkansas. It is the place in America with the highest concentration of churches. Yet I will tell you that I have never been anywhere where I would say that the, the city is filled with people communicating about this gospel. Even in those places where there's lots of church buildings on a lot of corners, that is not the dialogue that is going on between all the people. Have you heard about this gospel? Have you heard about this good news? Jerusalem was filled. I would love to see the Lord give that kind of revival here on Long Island where the conversation of people at Target is, have you heard this gospel? Have you heard about those Christians, what those Christians are teaching? May God pour out his spirit in a way that we are growing the kingdom here so that that might be the centerpiece of conversation. The average person in their community had heard the gospel and understood its claims. We cannot say that to be true of this place, and I don't believe any other place here in the United States, if in the world today. But oh, that the Lord would use us to be that kind of movement here. Notice that while they had the freedom, they utilized it. While they were still free, they proclaimed the good news. And then when they were told to stop, it is at that point when they say, we must obey God rather than man. But do not expect that you will stand up and say, we must obey God rather than man to a persecutor if you will not look in the mirror and say, we must obey God rather than myself. The apostles were already carrying out that mission. And so I want to talk a little bit about civil disobedience and how we respond if there's persecution. But ultimately, this is an indictment on those of us who have religious freedom. More than there's ever been religious freedom anywhere in the world. Let's use that. Let's proclaim the goodness of God and fill this place with his teachings. But consider the fact that these apostles who were carrying out this now act in civil disobedience before the Sanhedrin. Christians should be the most law-abiding model citizens in our nation or anywhere in the world where they live. We should honor those who are in leadership and we should pray for them regularly whether we voted for them or against them. As long as the laws of the land do not violate scriptural mandates, we should also fully submit to them. And we should render unto Caesar our taxes and uncle, to Uncle Sam our taxes and to God what is God's. And we are called to do that, not with the attitude that we often have, which is one of grumbling and complaining, 
but one of recognition that God has permitted us at this time to live in this place. So we should be model citizens. However, when the government oversteps its God-given authority and it requires us to violate biblical commands, that is when we step forward and do precisely what the apostles do in this passage. And we inform our government that we are called to obey God rather than man. We tell them the order of authority. God is our primary boss. You are secondary. I obey him first and foremost, but I desire to honor you. In our present world, the place where you are most likely going to be asked to compromise is that you will possibly, maybe even likely, be compelled to make statements affirming certain forms of sexual behavior that is contrary to God's design. There are artists from a variety of skills, whether it be baking or card making or videography, who are being sued and fined for their refusal to violate conscience on this issue. This is a nationwide dilemma. Interestingly, when these people are written about by major media outlets, they are referred to by these two words commonly, fundamentalists and extremists. Paul Washer makes note that, interestingly enough, those are the exact same two words that are often used when there is a terror attack by someone who believes in Islam. They are not called Muslims. They are called fundamentalist extremists. There may be a day approaching when the culture compares the two of us. They view our stance about sexuality as just as violent as if we were flying a plane into a building. And they will consider us just as morally vile because we oppose the system that they are imposing. Their moral perspectives are not things that we can conform to. But in those days, we must hold firm to our convictions and say with the apostles, I must obey God rather than man. Here's the second application for us who are believers in the room. Preach repentance. Over my lifetime, it seems to me that there is a small percentage of Christians who actually do share the gospel with others, but those who do fall into usually one of two categories. There are more categories, but these are the two big ones that exist. You've heard of both of them. On the one side, you have people that are called fire and brimstone preachers. Have any of you seen them? If you go in the city and you find them on a, on a box yelling, they've got a sign that says hell on it real big. You know exactly what I'm talking about. They, they almost seem to delight in the fact that they are telling people, you are on your way to hell. And they're very light on the fact of the mercy and the grace that is available in Jesus Christ. There are many of those. And they put an emphasis on hell, I think, in such a way that they desire people to be saved, but they desire to do it by frightening them into the kingdom. On the other hand, there are those who take the opposite approach, and they present God as some kind of a powerless old grandfatherly figure who just wishes that his kids would stop by for a visit. Now, they wouldn't probably agree or like the way that I'm presenting them now, but the center of their approach is to say something like this. Jesus just loves you so much, and he just wishes that you would come to be part of his family. He just is begging and pleading for you just to come over and to spend time and be close to him. I was recently... uh, in a gathering where there was a pastor of another church who spoke, and that was almost word for word how he presented the gospel, and that was the deepest that he went. This form of preaching and evangelizing seems to have become far more prevalent in our culture than fire and brimstone preaching. And it makes sense that it would be because it's not offensive. It's not offensive to anybody's sensibilities. Just, Jesus just, just loves you. He just loves you how you are, but he wants you to come be with them. However, neither one of these are in alignment with the way we see evangelism taking place in the book of Acts. The book of Acts has more actual examples of preaching and 
and evangelism to unbelievers than any other post-resurrection book in the New Testament. Yet for all of the sermons and all of the conversations about the gospel, the word love is used in the book of Acts a grand total of zero times. It is not the focus of the apostles' evangelism. It is not the focus of their missions. In these verses, we just read them, we get a very good sense of what they are called to do. First, notice the guilt that they recognize is rightly on the Sadducees. They say, the Sadducees say that you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That is highly ironic, is it not? These are the ones who actually killed Jesus, were they not? These are the specific people who were engaged in organizing the plot, were they not? And yet we also read these words that were said about a year earlier when Jesus was being crucified, Matthew 27, 24 through 25. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands. And what did he say? Before the crowd, he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered him, his blood is on us and on our children. These men are now saying to the apostles, you intend to put his blood on our hands? These are the men who claimed it. These are the men who fought to to have that right to kill Jesus. But now that the burden of blood guilt of Jesus is uncomfortable to them, and they push the blame away and say to the apostles, this is your fault for making me feel guilty even though it doesn't seem as though the apostles have said anything about blood guilt up to this point. But Peter said to the Sadducees in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Here we see that Peter acknowledges that it was these exact people who hung Jesus on that cross. Pause for a second. Whenever I quote any of the verses about Jesus dying on a tree, one of my kids always inevitably does this. They come over and they stop me and they say, Daddy, it wasn't a tree. It was a cross. Like, I just don't know this by now. Like, I obviously, I need to learn that it was a cross and not a tree. I try to explain to them. It'll get through eventually. But of course, they're right. Why does Peter use the word tree here, not the word cross? Because he is speaking to people who know the Old Testament. And he knows exactly what he is referencing, which is a common passage. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, which says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Peter is recognizing that they have killed and not only killed, but also dishonored. And this man has been cursed who has been on this tree. They dishonored the God of life who is worthy of all worship. He does not let them off the hook, does he? He doesn't say, oh, I know you're feeling guilty. Let me just try to assuage that guilt. No, he actually tells them you are guilty. When we evangelize, we are not called to assuage the guilt of others. We cannot forgive people from their sins. We cannot cause them to be right with God. When people do feel guilty, we are not called to diminish that, but to affirm it. It's because you are guilty before God. Not in a self-righteous way to say, because you are, but I'm not, but to recognize that just like me, you are fallen. You have fallen far short of what God requires. That you have not met his standard. That you have rebelled. That you are his enemy. That you are far away from him. We do not assuage their guilt, but we confirm their guilt and recognize you are actually guilty before God. That's what Peter does here. But Peter also reveals to them that there is a way of salvation. Verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. He uses the term savior for them. Not only is he your commander, Sadducees, he's your savior. 
He's the one who can save you. And then he says to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And remember, the, the gospel has not yet gone to the Gentiles. At this time, it is still exclusively in the kingdom of Israel with the Jewish people. So he's exclusively speaking now to Israel, but this is true for all people, that Jesus came to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus is alive, we can repent and we can see, receive forgiveness of our sins. If any of those religious rulers, these people who were guilty of the blood of Christ, would have repented at that moment, their sins would have been forgiven. They would have been wiped away. This is the manner in which we share the gospel. My friend Juan Kwok often says, we live in the world, but not of the world, but for the world. I understand the tension in that. As we stand in opposition to all the world stands for, we also have compassion on those who are in the world, and we desire for them to be forgiven, just like us. We are against the world, but we are also for the world. Here you see that in Peter's ministry. He is against the world and does not want to honor their system. He will not follow their instructions or their way of life. But he is also for them. He is telling them the truth about how you too can trust and know Christ. So I encourage you to preach boldly, confirming people that they are indeed sinners, but always showing them that Christ is a greater Savior than they are a sinner. Application number three. We'll close with this one. We'll call it being found worthy to suffer dishonor. Jump down now to verse 39 at the end of Gamaliel's speech. He said, you might even be found to be opposing God. So they took his advice. So now these people who were seething rage, who wanted murder, they wanted to kill the apostles. Now they are, for at least this moment, calmed down. And they took the advice of this philosopher named Gamaliel. And it says, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Now, the apostles were released, but not without some bruises. Their actions earned them imprisonment, and now after God miraculously released them by way of an angel, now their actions earned them a beating and then a release. But as we will see soon in this book, obedience to God does not always end with an earthly freedom. But the church is always called to respond to persecution with a heart like the apostles have here. Consider verse 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus, that the Messiah is Jesus. Notice the one thing the Sadducees commanded them to do was just stop teaching, stop preaching. But in 42, it bluntly states, they did not cease teaching or preaching. They continued on. They had endurance to continue in the face of mounting opposition and even physical threats. How is it that they were able to have endurance? How is it that they were able to stand firm in this trial? We get a glimpse into that thinking in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This is remarkably humbling to me. I think that we are so allergic to even the slightest form of suffering for the name of Christ that we respond with despair and with self-pity. But they responded to imprisonment and even beatings with rejoicing. As they bandaged up their wounds, they were praising God. 
I can just see, for example, Thomas laying face down with his back broken open, his skin bleeding, and somebody putting ointment in his wounds, in his freshly sliced open skin, and just saying, thank you, Jesus, for allowing me to have these scars. I can imagine Philip nursing a broken rib and aching every time he breathed, yet with every breath saying, thank you, Lord, for letting me be your witness. Obviously, we don't know exactly what their wounds were like, but their hearts could not be more evidently on display. They were happy to lay down their reputation, to lay down their physical bodies and absorb any amount of shame and violence that was cast in their direction for the name of Jesus. And why would they do that? And how could you and I ever do that? Here's the answer. By setting our eyes on the same one who did it for us. We only love him because he loved us first. We only suffer for him because he suffered in our place. The shame that we endure will never rival the shame that he experienced. Consider he bore the sin of the world on his shoulders and he was crucified as a public spectacle before a mocking world. We won't experience anything near what he did. The apostles could stand for Jesus because Jesus stood for them first. And our strength and our endurance and our steadfastness in faith will only be as sturdy as our grounding. And if you are standing on the gospel, then you will never be shaken. But if you rely on your own self-will or on your own determination or your own stick to then you are guaranteed to fall when the trials of life come at you like a whirlwind. So build your life on the gospel. See Christ's loving dedication to you and reflexively be dedicated to him. Now, as I close, I will simply say, we don't only share in Christ's sufferings. There's a promise that we are also going to share in his reward. As I said earlier this morning, your life in Christ is eternal and no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck you from his hand. And even if the enemies of Christ were to destroy your body, you would still be raised in endless life with him forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word in Acts chapter 5 to show us what it is that we are supposed to be like as believers. But I thank you much more that it displays what you have already shown yourself to be like. A God who has sent his son to be mocked and ridiculed and shamed and beaten and even killed for your people. And I pray that today we would not overlook that or think little of it because we are aware in our minds that it happened. But that we would ground our lives on that reality, living in such a way that we recognize that he is worthy of all of my life. Whatever he calls me to do, that I will do because he is worthy. Lord, I pray that you would give us strength in the face of mounting opposition against the the church in this time period. I pray that you would continue to give us religious freedom in this nation. Allow us the opportunity to continue to faithfully proclaim and build your church without fear of any kind of government intervention like there is for nearly half of the Christians in the world today. God, I pray that instead you would give us an opportunity for much revival and that that revival would reach all sectors of our public world. May this island be filled with the teaching of your name. Lord, I pray that if that is not the case, if we see persecution arise, that in those times you would give us great resilience and great zeal and great opportunity and ability to say with the apostles, we must obey God rather than men. And Lord, if we respond, if they respond with any kind of 
persecution, I pray that we would be quick to rejoice and quick to say, thank you, Lord, for letting me be worthy to suffer for your sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.